Welcome to the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast, a podcast created to inform patients, families, and caregivers about important health transformation topics. Since the 2001 Crossing the Quality Chasm Report by the Institute of Medicine, our nation's healthcare system has recognized its need to improve quality of care by way of six important aims that make healthcare safe, efficient, effective, patient-centered, timely, and equitable. But we cannot hope to cross this chasm and achieve these aims until we make fundamental changes to the whole healthcare system. All levels of this work require dramatic improvements from the patient's experience. So this podcast is dedicated to you, the voices most underutilized resource in healthcare, our patients' voices. Welcome, and we hope you enjoy the Patient Partner Innovation Community Podcast. We are so excited today to have um, joining with us on our Patient Partner Innovation uh, Community Podcast uh, our co-host, Desiree Bradley, who is our Patient uh, Network Lead, and our um, guest today to talk about sepsis, something that we really want the world to know uh, more about, and that's Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Coffey. Welcome, Stephen. Welcome, Desiree, oh, thank you so thank much. You. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I'm 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 gonna go straight in because um, Stephen, there there's a very close friend of mine that I grew up with, um, whose uh, father had I I I will never forget it, went um, to the emergency room with uh, flu-like symptoms, uh, and he passed away many years ago. This was probably at least about, I would say at least 15 years ago, if not a little bit more. And as I learned about sepsis, um, you know, in my more adult years and as I, you know, matriculate through my educational process and began to work in health services delivery and began to understand sepsis, I always in my mind thought, did he really pass from sepsis? And, uh, you know, just the number of undetected um, cases um, that we have. So I I just want to, you know, go immediately uh, to you with regards to, number one, what is sepsis, right? And why should our listeners uh, be um, uh, so apt to um, have this conversation or to learn more about it? Um, And then understanding your personal experience with it. Well, thanks so, thanks so much for uh, inviting me to the podcast. This is a great opportunity, and I'm always eager to spread the word about sepsis. Uh, I think oftentimes sepsis is is something that we don't talk about because we don't know about it, or it's something that we've not heard in its form, in its medical terms, of called sepsis. So sepsis is actually uh, blood poisoning. Right? So growing up in, in the South, in the great state of Tennessee, uh, beautiful city of Nashville, I've heard people have, uh, they got blood poisoning, they got six, they got a, a bacteria or something like that, bacterial poison, but mm-hmm. I've never heard of sepsis. Mm-hmm. And so so oftentimes I think that, that folks are, are actually have sepsis and they don't know the signs of sepsis. And so this is why I'm a big proponent of uh, advocating the awareness of sepsis uh, within the community. I think oftentimes in the hospital settings, uh, folks know about it. I mean, there, there are clinicians that talk about sepsis and they have training about it. But the, the challenge that I think we have, 
now is how do we educate the public about sepsis? Mm -hmm. How do we educate folks that are at home who may experience some of these symptoms and these signs uh, about what that actually means and what they should do about it? Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting, you know, when we think about that, I want to just kind of get into a little story about my son uh, with his experience with sepsis. Now, my son, Stephen II, I call him Deuce. He's a special boy, and I know everybody says that their kid is the most special kid in the world, and they are in their own right. But my son had a liver transplant at the very tender age of eight weeks old. Mm. And so he was the youngest in the country to have a liver transplant in 2012, and probably still one of the youngest uh, since then to have a transplant, but eight weeks old. And the reason why he had a transplant was because of this condition, a metabolic condition that he has called galactosemia. Okay. Now, galactosemia, it's a condition whereby his body cannot break down the enzymes and the sugars and galactose found in human and animals' milk. Okay. So, with the, so, so put in your mind here, when he's a baby, he's getting his mother's milk. And the thing that we know about mother's milk is that it should be the most nutritious form of, of, of uh, milk that you could have. But that very nutritious milk he had from his mother was the thing that was damaging his liver. Mm. What mm. a dichotomy that we live in trying to understand how do we take care of this baby and how do we feed him. And so I bring that up more as a stage setter of saying that because he was a infant population, he's in this, this, this critical uh, population of being infants, and we know that our seniors are in that same population, but it's not just those two ends of the spectrum, but everyone is actually exposed and at a danger of getting sepsis. So him being uh, having liver transplant in 2012, he has uh, he's immune suppressed. And what that means in real terms is that his immune system is just not as strong as everyone else's. And in fact, on tonight, we were trying to fight off a bug. I think he went to school and somebody had uh, the flu or something. So he's now fighting a bug and fell over 101 temperature. So it has been an interesting snow day here in D.C. But uh, he is susceptible to getting sick. And it means he's more susceptible to getting sepsis. Mm. So I recall a story uh, about the two-year mark of you know, him being alive and he's passed his transplant and whatnot. And so my, my wife decides that she was going to go away on a trip. Now, this is the first time that she's going to have sort of a girl's trip by herself, a girl trip to New Orleans, no less. And she is from New Orleans. So going to have a girl's trip to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And, and she left me some parting instructions that were very apropos as a first time mom. Now she said, I want to make sure that you do three things. So you have three jobs. So number one, make sure my baby is fed. Make sure he's clean. Make sure he's alive. All right, Desiree, now, you heard word. that. You heard that, Desiree. <laughs> clean. Yeah, oh, wait a minute. Clean. And, Let me make sure I got it right. Clean, alive. And what was the third yeah. one? And fed. And fed. And okay. Sure fed. All right. Now, okay, Steve, I'm watching for the rest of this story now because you heard mama. <laughs> Now look, so, so the thing that I focused in on was she said, my baby. Now I'm thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> That's I'm, right. I love I'm pretty, it. I'm pretty sure I was there <laughs> when this baby. You probably were, okay? I'm pretty sure I was there with him when he had his transplant and the months following. But she said, my baby. That's right. And she meant it. clean, That's fed, right. and alive. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, I said, okay, I got this. I got this. I'm the, I'm the man. I got this. And so when she's gone, he slept a lot. So I'm thinking in my mind and my wife, 
she works in banking with a, a very large banking uh, institution and worked from home at the time. And so I'm thinking, I got this. Why are you always complaining about how hard it is <laughs> to take care of this baby while you're working? Now, I know it is hard. Trust me, mm-hmm. I know it's hard. Mm-hmm. But, but he slept a lot. And it was really cool. So I'm thinking, I got it. He's sleeping. And so he, uh, I gave him his lunch and he threw his lunch up. Now, as, as a, a frequent flyer of the hospital with a kid that has a chronic condition, uh, I am used to him throwing up. And he had bouts of cholangitis uh, following transplant. So it was no surprise that he threw up his food. And I just cleaned it up and right. put him uh, back around and, and cleaned him up and whatnot. But he went back to sleep. And so I'm thinking, again, I got this. So I give him a bath later that night. And I noticed that he's shivering. Wow. So that my first in- instinct is, well, maybe the water is a little bit too cold. Mm-hmm. Now get him out of the bath and dry him off, but he's warm. He has a fever. So wait a minute, you're shivering, but you're also a fever. That's a little weird. Mm-hmm. But I take his temperature and it was around 99. And, and the normal transplant protocol we have is that if your temperature gets to about 100, 101, you need to make sure that you get into the hospital right, because right. it could right. be, it, it could be a, a rejection. Right. Mm-hmm. So. I, you know, I have a go bag, right? So I'm such a frequent flyer of the hospital. I've got a bag that I could grab at a moment's notice with all the essentials to carry me over for about two to three days in the hospital. So I've got my go bag ready and I decide, hey, his temperature is about 101 now. It's time to go. Now I live about in in the DC metro uh, DMV. So the DC, Maryland, Virginia area. And so the area that I live in specifically is about 45 minutes or so from the hospital that we had our transplant at, Georgetown uh, University Hospital. So we drive to the hospital. And when we get there, there are three things that I know about uh, most hospitals when you go and have to have to stay. Number one, they're going to charge you for parking. Number two, they're going to have to stick him. And he was a very hard stick because he'd had so many uh, IVs and lines put in his body. And you can imagine at two years old, after having so much trauma from two months old, mm-hmm. he has really used up a lot of veins and blown veins and all kinds of stuff. And the mm-hmm. third and most important thing, they're going to charge him for parking. So, <laughs> yes. So I, I turn to look at my son and got to say this, this thing to him, and he's going into a seizure. Wow. And so I quickly, I quickly come out of this parking garage and run to the ED. With my door open, car running, I give them my baby and say, my baby's having a seizure. Help me. Wow. And they ran this protocol on him. And so finally, they moved us up to uh, the, the pediatric ICU. And later on that night, I uh, got a word from the doctors about it being sepsis. And so the thing that, that kind of confused me is that I lacked a lot of information. Now, understand my background. I'm a military officer, been in uh, 17 and a half years. So almost 18 years in, I've got a TSSCI, TK, Gamma, HCS, Yankee White clearance. Hey, I like right? all that. <laughs> okay. Right. And XYZ, too. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I worked at Special Operations Command when we got Osama bin Laden, Central Command when we took out Saddam Hussein and worked for two U.S. presidents. I have a lot of education from some really good schools between Morehouse College for undergrad and George Washington University for graduate school and hopefully going to Georgetown for another master's. But I had never in my life Mm -hmm. heard the word sepsis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So what I learned is that I lacked education about mm-hmm. the word sepsis, about what is sepsis? What does it mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've heard about it in hospitals. I've heard about it, you know, called different things, but never the word sepsis. Right. And the, le- the second thing is that I lacked information. I mean, I've known that hospitals have all of these, these great programs about how do we reduce clapsy? How do we reduce falls? How do we do hand washing? How do we, you know, reduce MRSA? But I lacked information about uh, sepsis and how susceptible my son would be at home. I knew about it inside the hospital, but I didn't know I could get sepsis at home. So it was really an eye-opening experience for me to learn that sepsis is not just relegated to the two extremes, our very young and our, and our seniors, but anyone can get it. And lastly, you know, just, just throw out there, um, I remember hearing about sepsis for the first time in a, in a, uh, in a, a, a presentation at MedStar. So this is after my son's thing, and I, the first story I'd heard about sepsis outside of his. And it was about a 12-year-old kid who was perfectly healthy, and he was in New York. And I believe the kid scraped his knee or arm or something like that while visiting uh, on an airplane to, you know, Sully Suddenberger had his miracle on the Hudson. And he's in New York. He's flying. He gets a chance to get to the cockpit of the uh, aircraft and he sees it, he scrapes his knees, scrapes his arm, something like that. Real healthy kids. Mm-hmm. And goes on. Parents didn't think anything about this because it's just a normal scrape that normal children get. Mm-hmm. And he ends up getting a fever. And they run to the hospital and they're like, hey, you're a new mom. You're a new dad. It's just a scrape. It's just a fever. He'll get over it. And a long story short with this story, the kid actually died because of that scrape. Wow. Perfectly healthy kid. Perfectly healthy kid. Mm-hmm. Wow. And, and got an infection through a normal scrape, and, which mm-hmm. caused him to lose his life. Um, Stephen, real quickly, I just want to reference that. You've made such a brilliant point here um, with regards to sepsis, because this is the one thing that I think that a lot of people don't know, is really sepsis is the body's overwhelming, life-threatening response to an infection. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, 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 that, and that can actually happen both in the inpatient setting as well as in mm-hmm. the home setting, as it did with, with your son. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think that, that the the thing about it, I know for me, I had my own bout with sepsis is around the language because I'm a pretty savvy patient partner having a, a also having a special needs child, a frequent flyer at the hospital. So I know about infection, infection control and all the parameters. But when I myself experienced sepsis, when I went in, the the, the team told me, oh, you just have a really big bug. And I was like, well, big bug, what does that mean? And so I had to really put my thinking cap on and say, okay, Desiree, it's time for you to put your patient, you know, partner advocacy hat on and, and ask them, like, is, am I sepsis? Is this sepsis? Right, right. Am I sepsis? And they looked at me like, oh, my goodness, like I was speaking Greek, like I wasn't supposed to be able to ask them that question. And so I think we really need to do a better job, you know, educating our community not just our vulnerable populations, but everybody on what sepsis is, what to look for and, and how to um, get treatment for it. And even when I think about, even when I think about Stephen really quickly, even when I think about the, in, in your son's case is even being brave enough, courageous enough to ask the question with regards to whether or not they have a sepsis protocol in place. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you're showing up at, at an emergency uh, room and you and I know, we know, 
um, you know, that every hospital has not. There are close to 6,000 hospitals here uh, in just the United States alone, and we know of all 6,000 of those, all of them do not have a sepsis protocol in place. So being courageous enough to simply even ask that question uh, is Mm -hmm. something that patients need to also understand. Well, so yep. there's a, there's, and you bring up a really great point because what I've noticed is that there's actually, in my mind, a seam in care, mm-hmm. a, a seam in the connectedness of care. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about those 6,000 hospitals, you know, I would also argue that there are other hospitals when I, in a military setting. And so I'll, I'll give you an example. I was cooking one day and I cook a lot. I cook a lot. I have a, a little Facebook video thing we do with my son every Saturday, and we cook everything from muffins to banana saucer to waffles, <laughs> primarily because he can't have dairy, so I had to learn alternative ways of cooking right. things so that he can enjoy them as well. And mm-hmm. so one day I, I was cooking uh, in my house, and uh, you know when guys cook, we do a little different than women, right? We just do. So I believe that when I buy pots and pans, I should use all of them because that's why I bought them. <laughs> Watch yourself, Stephen. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. My, my, my wife is adept at being able to use three pans and cook a seven-course meal. That's a woman for you. That's a woman for you. Exactly. I, and I applaud her for it and keep the kitchen clean at the same time. Okay. I am not that skilled. So I recall, <laughs> I recall one time that I was uh, I was cooking. And, of course, I've got every pot and pan used in the entire house on the stove and the counters. And she came down and she kind of looks at me and is like, you know, why do you have every single pot pan that we own out? And mm-hmm. I'm like, leave me alone. I'm cooking. And I accidentally cut my finger. Mm-hmm. Now, my wife would probably look at me and say, see, I told you trying to cook angry and be mad when I just ask a simple question. But she was a good, gracious wife. And she said, well, let me help you with your finger. Even though she put a little alcohol on it and, uh, you know, pressed it a little hard for me. Oh, <laughs> you know, revenge is served. Is that circle? But so I applied pressure to this cut and uh, it didn't stop bleeding. And so because of our son, you know, obviously we're not going to just cart him to the hospital. So it sounds mean that I had to drive myself to the hospital uh, constantly applying pressure to my finger, hmm. but it was for his safety as well. And so I get to the hospital on a military installation and I go to the front desk person who's kind of doing the intake and they ask you what's wrong and all those types of things. And now I'm keenly aware of sepsis. I've been working with it. My son has experience. And so I asked them in the hospital setting, what's your sepsis protocol for outpatient awareness? Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you educate Patients that are coming in from an in and outpatient setting, how do you educate them on sepsis? And this person told me, well, you know, we've got a hand washing station, which, you know, you know, sepsis is not relegated to hand washing. In fact, I would argue that hand washing will not prevent you from getting sepsis. Mm -hmm. No. Um, And so so that showed me that there was a seam in care. And so as I'm getting stitches, because, yes, it was that bad of a cut, I had to get stitches. I asked uh, the nurse and I asked the doctor and the other tech, what is the protocol this place uses Mm -hmm. for outpatient awareness of sepsis? Mm -hmm. And the doctor said, well, we've got a program we're doing for inpatient. And I applaud them for doing that. But in an outpatient setting, and if we know that sepsis has flu-like symptoms, you can literally, you can have a person that comes in and they're sitting in the waiting room. They go to that first, that frontline person and say, hey, I feel bad. I've got a fever. I'm, I'm sleepy. Uh, and all these things, mm-hmm. these normal symptoms. 
and they can be septic right. and we not know it. Right. So the thing that I, that I charge everyone to do is to not only have protocols within the clinicians, the doctors, the nurses, mm-hmm. the techs, mm-hmm. but also what I consider that front line. You know, as a military yeah. guy, you always got to protect the front line. The mm-hmm. front line is that that admin person who's going right. to sign you in, that they need to understand and recognize the signs and symptoms of sepsis. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the, yeah, the, one, the one other thing that I think is, is, is very important before we go to uh, kind of our closing um, uh, statements is that, again, um, you know, this is really a causation from infection. And we know, as my grandmother used to say, you know, uh, infection can set itself up, you know, in a number mm-hmm. of different ways. So it's not just it's not just that mm-hmm. you had surgery, right, and that the body was opened uh, in in some way and then susceptible to to infection. But you can also get we get we get uh, you know infections from uh, ear infections. We get infections mm-hmm. from sinus infections. You know, and how those things um, exacerbate through through the body is really. Um, how septicemia can come uh, uh, to be. So it's really about how it um, how it mutates within the body, how an infection you know progresses within the body. Um, and anyone who is suspect of uh, an infection, and I would imagine what Stephen the first proto- the the first thing the same that they have taught you with your son is in, is fever, right? That's the that's one of the exactly. main one of the primary signs, mm-hmm. you know um, that. Uh, you know, there may be uh, infection in, in, in the body. And then I think the other thing is, is that um, to your point, responding right to that, because can you imagine the number of people? And you know, I used my girlfriend as an example in the earlier part of of the segment. You know, uh, folks that just you know honestly think they have the flu, right? That has progressed, mm-hmm. and and really, exactly. it's not just the flu; it is actually mm-hmm. um, a sepsis, and sepsis is life threatening. And then the other thing that we also know is sepsis is also a very time sensitive disease, right? That it is something that has to be responded to within a certain window of time. And so um, if you have not presented yourself uh, within um, a uh, within that set window of time um, from, uh, you know, from the onset of infection, you know, uh, it it can obviously uh, worsen and, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, more deeply uh, put yourself at risk, um, you know, for um, for harm. So we want to make certain that individuals understand that piece as well. Stephen, I, I, you know, I know, um, both you and, uh, Desiree, Desiree, you with, with Dionk, um, have mm-hmm. done a lot of work in advocacy. And as we prepare to close, just want to, you know, do you have any, um, thoughts that you want to leave the audience with, with regards to advocacy around, um, these types of subjects? And and I'll just jump right in. I think for me, my biggest thing is the community piece. And so, you know, a lot of us, your faith-based organizations, you know, your YMCAs, Mm -hmm. reaching out to where patients are in their community and bring the awareness to them. A lot of times we see, like Stephen, Colonel Stephen said earlier, inpatient in the hospital setting, you get a lot of that education. It's the community. It's the patients in the community that need to learn what sepsis is, what they can do to prevent it and to catch it because people are dying. Mm -hmm. People's lives are, people are losing their lives. Steven? Yeah. Well, I would, I would absolutely echo that. Um, 
the thing that I would tell everyone is that sepsis is a full contact sport. Hmm. It is not something that we can sit on the sidelines and, and just wait. And it's not something that you can take care of at home. You know, you have to go to the emergency department because those are the places that are well-equipped and best equipped right. to uh, really deal with sepsis. And when you have these symptoms of shivering and being cold or having pain or discolored skin and feeling sleepy, shortness of breath, those are the things that are telltale signs mm -hmm. that you may have sepsis. Mm -hmm. and, and I would, I would, I would ask that for the folks that are listening, if you have these signs, you go to the emergency department and you say the words, "I suspect sepsis," because yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. mm -hmm. yeah. that will get people to move. It changes and, the and, ball and, game. Yes, absolutely. Correct. I think you, you're you're so correct when you talk about the timeliness of it because it's a very mm -hmm. fluid timeline between when you get a fever and when you get chills and when you actually are in septic shock mm -hmm. and when you yes. get caused some serious lifelong harm mm -hmm. because of sepsis. Mm -hmm. So it is not something you can just kind of say, oh, I have a fever now. Mm -hmm. Oh, now I'm pale skin. Now I feel sleepy. It can happen. And I'll give you the last example. As I was taking my son from my home to the hospital, about a 45 minute drive, mm -hmm. his temperature went from 100 degrees, 101 degrees to 103 in a matter of 45 minutes, mm -hmm. and he went into septic shock. Yeah. So it is a very fluid, it's a very fast-acting thing at times. And it's yeah. really important to get ahead of it by knowing the signs, knowing the symptoms, and saying, I suspect sepsis. Yeah. No, that's really good stuff. So I want to, um, as we prepare to close, I want to um, send a shout-out to uh, Dr. Carl Flatley, who is – uh, the founder um, and president of the um, Sepsis Alliance. Uh, and um, the Sepsis Alliance was actually uh, put together in memory of his daughter, Erin, who he lost um, years ago uh, uh, to sepsis. And you can uh, follow that organization online at sepsis.org, which is S E P. SIS.org, so sepsis.org, and there's plenty of tools and resources um, available uh, for patients, families, and caregivers um, to learn more about uh, sepsis. Uh, and then, obviously, there is the, pa the Patient Partner Innovation Community, uh, which uh, Desiree, Desiree, if you want to share your contact information. Sure, sure. You guys can reach us at pticonline.com. That's pticonline.com. And then Lieutenant Colonel Stephen Coffey, uh, one of the most important guys I know. Is there some contact information that you can share uh, for Absolutely. our audience to get in contact with you? Absolutely. Well, first of all, I do a lot of work with MedStar Health, and MedStar Health has done an amazing job of pushing out a campaign to increase awareness about sepsis, uh, not only within DMV, but really around the country. And so I would always tell folks, reach out to uh, www.medstar.org. Uh, <clears throat> and there's a great a plethora of information there, in terms also on the Facebook sites and Twitter and all those other social media platforms. Mm -hmm. um, you can reach out to those folks and learn more about sepsis and the community initiatives that we're pushing out. And I believe a lot of those things are, uh, are things that we can replicate, that mm -hmm. you can replicate in your own health systems, your own hospitals, certainly with how we stood up our PFAC and the engagement that we have from our PFAC. Uh, lots of information at Med Star Health. Uh, so definitely go out there and, and check out that stuff. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for uh, joining us on today. I have certainly um, learned a lot in working with you um, over the most recent few years, uh, Stephen, and uh, just learning more about um, sepsis and even as a caregiver, um, honestly, uh, you know, uh, with regards to your family dynamics, you and your wife. And so I so appreciate, um, you know, the contribution that you guys make. And also to you, um, Desiree Dion, uh, and to um, your husband as well for the contribution that you make to patient advocacy. So we want to thank you both uh, for joining us on today. And we will be back in touch soon. In the meantime, stay Thanks. safe. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Desiree Bradley, and I want you to be engaged. Why don't you come join me at Patient Partner Innovation Community? That's PPIC, P-P-I-C, online.com. And don't forget to join us on Facebook as well.